Hello and welcome back to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me today is Simon Elliott, head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. Let's kick off in a normal way, Simon, by having a quick look at the market. I've had a quick look at my portfolio. It seems to have gone up a little bit. What's been happening in the market? Well, it's been a good week for investors, to be honest, um, and particularly those in investment companies. The investment company sector will probably end up between about 3 and 3.5% three and this week, and that's ahead of the UK market. Uh, the UK market probably just finished just slightly below 2%, but still a pretty decent return. Uh, in terms of the sector average discount, it's hovering around about 3% or so at the moment. Um, but I think it's fair to say that this week we have seen a distinct rise in optimism across the marketplace. Clearly, uh, in the UK, the vaccine program is going well and uh, obviously positive news that uh, those people that have received the vaccine are less likely to tra- transmit the virus. But I think the market's attention is very focused on the coronavirus relief package, Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion package, uh, and we'll see how that progresses in the weeks ahead. And I think we also had a Bank of England meeting this week or, or announcement this week about their latest policy stance, and people have been uh, interpreting that in different ways, saying that they were wanted the banks to prepare for negative interest rates, but of course they weren't actually necessarily thinking about implementing them. So that's had the soothsayers uh, scratching their heads a little bit about whether it actually means we are heading that way or not, and whether there'll be a change in the QE uh, regime. So they're important, some interesting things there. And the pound, I noticed, is up to about 141 at one point, which is uh, almost back to levels it was before the, uh, the Brexit referendum. So uh, interesting week. And as you say, quite a positive one. Before we get on to um, fundraising, of which there's more news this week, let's uh, have a quick look at a couple of other corporate announcements. And one which got a little bit of attention was concerned the Alliance Trust. Yeah, an interesting announcement from Alliance Trust this week. So just to remind people, it's uh, it adopted a multi-manager structure a number of years ago. Um, and so the nine underlying stock pickers. But this week they announced that Lomas Capital Management the contract with them effectively would be terminated. Uh, and this was a result of uh, Lomas being wound down. Two of the three senior portfolio managers have decided to retire. So not necessarily huge news, but I think a few eyebrows have been raised, not least because Lomas only joined the lineup back in October last year. So the fact that uh, Willis Towers Watson, Alliance Trust Investment Manager, um, who really prides itself on its ability to select really high performing managers uh, and in this mandate at least blend them together to provide a pretty consistent return profile. Um, I think that is obviously a disappointing development for Alliance Trust. Yes and it's uh, I guess quite a surprising if uh, Lomas uh, they decided they're going to retire and they knew that when they were appointed that does seem rather strange so uh, slightly embarrassing as you say for Alliance Trust. We've talked about Alliance in the past I mean it's uh, it's been through this program of trying to change the way it manages money and uh, managed its own uh, investments for a long time, but not with great uh, distinction in the latter years. Uh, how has it been trading? I mean, against its peer group, uh, what's happening to it in terms of, uh, you know, first of all, its market cap and then its uh, discount? Alliance Trust is still a very large investment trust company. Obviously, um, it's got a very uh, long-standing pedigree. It's been running a long time. It's got a market cap of about £2.9 billion at the moment, so it's a decent size. 
Um, in terms of its rating, it's probably around about a 6 or 7% discount or so at the moment. And the buyback program has been quite active over recent years to ensure it stays around that level. I mean, in performance terms, uh, since they adopted the multi-manager approach, which was April 2017, so not too far off four years ago now, they have slightly underperformed their benchmark. So they're up about 45% in NAV terms compared with 49% for their their benchmark. However, to be fair to Alliance Trust, that reflects or partially reflects the fact that they had a, a number of investments initially other than global equities that acted as a drag on returns. Uh, those have subsequently been uh, disposed of. So certainly to the end of 2020, the equity portfolio was broadly in line with the index. But um, I suspect most shareholders or potential investors will compare the performance of Alliance Trust with other mandates such as uh, F&C Investment Trust or even another multi-manager fund such as Witten. And against those two investment trusts, um, F&C has the bragging rights at the moment. It's up 48% over that same time period, whereas Witten, for reasons I think we discussed before, it struggled last year, uh, and that's the laggard at the moment. Yes, there was a time when Alliance and Foreign Colonial were with the exception of 3i, they were the biggest investment trusts, as I recall, in uh, many years ago. But they have struggled a little bit in relative terms. But they've still got a lot of faithful followers, been investing with them for many, many years. Uh, let's move on and talk about uh, BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust. Uh, they've had some corporate news this week. What are they trying to do? Yeah, so they announced uh, details of their periodic tender off a liquidity event. And, and just to remind people how this one works, when this investment trust launched, which was uh, December 2010, the board made it clear that they would offer shareholders the opportunity to realise the value of their investment at NAV less cost at five yearly intervals. So the first time this happened was in the early part of 2016. And actually only about 4% of shares were tendered at that stage. And I think all were placed out. So the company didn't actually have to buy any in. So uh, we're five years on and there will be a vote on the 23rd of February to seek shareholder approval for the tender offer. Uh, and we'll see what the take up will be at that stage. There's a couple of clarifications around this. BlackRock themselves are a holder in the investment trust. So they have to be careful that uh, as a result of any tender offer, their holding doesn't become too large. Um, so there's a bit of protection around that. The board have also made it clear that if in the event that uh, the level of tender is very high, that they may consider the future of the investment trust. But uh, its long-term record is still very strong. It's a very interesting uh, area of the marketplace. Sam Vecht and Emily Fletcher uh, have uh, been responsible for this one since launch over 10 years ago. Uh, and certainly the, the performance over that period has been good against the wider frontier markets although it's fair to say it has lagged behind the Emerging Markets Index. And it's been a tougher period the last few years. Yes, I think we might hear from another trusted operator in this area a little bit later when we come to the results. How is it uh, treated in the market? Is it Does it trade at a premium, a discount? What's the story there? Yeah, I think because of this mechanism, uh, it does mean that uh, there's always that kind of pull to redemption, certainly on, a, on a, every five years. And to be honest, over the history of this particular investment trust, there have been times when it's trading on, on a premium. At the moment, it's on a very small discount, about 1%, and that compares with an average of 3% uh, over the previous 12 months. So that rating is a lot uh, tighter, uh, narrower than, than the wider emerging markets peer group. And as you said, with the tender offer coming up, that uh, that may not be a total surprise. Okay, so let's move on to fundraising. Let's kick off with uh, one which I think there probably will be some demand for, and that is uh, Bailey Gifford China Growth. 
That's right. So this week we learned that the, the board is contemplating an equity raise, uh, and that reflects the fact that the current authority to issue up to 20% of the fund's share capital might not be enough to satisfy uh, continuing demand. So just to remind people, this uh, investment trust was previously Witten Pacific. It only moved across to Bailey Gifford last year in September, uh, and that was accompanied by a tender offer, actually. So at that stage, the share capital of this investment trust contracted by about uh, 26% or so. But since then, actually, the, it's uh, issued a huge number of shares. In fact, the premium uh, did go out to about 30% at one stage. It's currently at around 7% premium to NAV. And China has proved very popular. So the three uh, investment trusts that are focused on China um, have traded well of late. And uh, certainly the JP Morgan Fund, for instance, has also been issuing shares into that demand as well. Yes, and uh, one thinks that may continue for a while at least. There are some issues around obviously investing in China, which you talked about, but we've also talked about the fact that China is becoming an increasing part of the emerging markets index and so on, and uh, quite apart from the fact that it's got some extraordinarily fast-growing companies in uh, the kind of stocks that uh, Bailey Gifford likes in other countries as well, particularly in internet stocks and technology and so on. So it has been very popular, and I guess those people who uh, who tended their shares in uh, Pacific Horizon might be wondering whether they were right to do that, but we'll have to see in the, as time goes by. How have the shares actually performed since then? Obviously, the rating has gone up, but uh, what about the actual shares themselves? How have they done? In terms of NAV total return performance, I've got the data for about the last three months, so um, that's not the full period. They've been responsible for about four and a half months, but certainly over the last three months, it's been a strong period. Uh, NAV total return of 21%, but to be fair, uh, China has been a decent market during that time. And in fact, its immediate peers, the Fidelity Fund and the JP Morgan Fund, are both up uh, similar levels. Okay, so I would be surprised if that one doesn't go uh, particularly well. But the reason they need this authority is because, as you say, they want to issue more than 20%. Normally, shareholders don't give more than about 20%, approval of 20%. Uh, but presumably, they'll have no trouble getting this on this occasion, do you think? I think that's right, though um, the, there are some institutional shareholders who are a, a little bit hesitant at allowing those kind of powers. I think in this instance, they can point to the fact that there, there's been a tender offer relatively recently, there's been a change of mandate, a change of manager, um, and clearly very strong demand for their shares. And one of the things that we talked about before is the importance of uh, not just managing your discount or looking to alleviate your discount level, but to ensuring that your premium level doesn't get too extended. Uh, and I think they are clearly seeing very strong demand for their, their shares at the moment. And it's in nobody's interest to see that push out to an extended level. So I, I mentioned that at one stage it hit 30 percent. Um, you know, that is not an ideal situation. And at that stage, they were limited in terms of the number of shares they could issue to the marketplace. So I think whereas a number of investment trusts have been very good at, at, at running uh, ongoing issuance programs, and we can think of names such as Smithson or Finsbury Growth and Income, Worldwide Healthcare Trust, um, just tapping out shares on a regular basis to ensure their premiums don't get overextended. I think in this case, that demand is outstripping supply. And this is one way to alleviate it. Let's move on now to the infrastructure sector. We've talked a lot about that in the last few months because there have been a lot of uh, fundraising and secondary issuance here. Last week, we mentioned an intended uh, ITPO, which was for Cordiant Digital Infrastructure, which would be a new type of infrastructure fund in the sense of focusing on, on various things to do with uh, the digital economy and the digital infrastructure assets. Well, lo and behold, this week we hear that there's a second one coming along with uh, a very sort of similar approach, a digital infrastructure trust. Uh, and that's also planning to do an IPO. Uh, so perhaps you can tell us uh, about this emerging uh, uh, competition, you might like to think. 
That's right. So we found out some details this week. Uh, Digital Nine Infrastructure is seeking to raise £400 million through its IPO. We haven't seen the prospectus yet. That's due out uh, next month. But as the name would suggest, this particular fund will look to invest in a range of digital infrastructure assets. And with the promise that it's looking for those assets to deliver a reliable functioning internet, which I think everybody could welcome. So the portfolio will comprise of various scalable platforms and technologies, which will include things such as subsea fiber, data centers, terrestrial fiber, tower infrastructure, and small cell networks, including 5G. So the manager will be uh, Triple Point, who have an existing digital infrastructure team have already invested not too far off $2 billion in this space. Uh, And this fund will target a 10% per annum net total uh, accounting return. And that includes uh, quite an attractive dividend level of 6%, uh, certainly as an initial dividend for the first financial year. And then they'll look to move it onwards and upwards on a progressive basis thereafter. Um, They've actually got a a pipeline of investments lined up, including about £160 million worth of assets. And they've named Aquacoms, a platform owning and operating 20,000 kilometres of transatlantic subsea fibre systems uh, as one of their first potential uh, investments. But behind that is apparently a pipeline of about three billion US dollars. So it looks like there is plenty of scope to uh, get their money to work. Yeah, so this is an an interesting new area. We haven't had any digital infrastructure funds so far. So there are going to be two trying to come to market. Uh, I think one's trying to raise, said it was trying to raise 300 million. The other one's trying to raise 400 million. These are quite chunky sums, are they not? They would put them up in the top of the league in terms of some recent IPOs anyway. How do you think these might go, Simon? Well, we'll find out. We'll find out quite soon. I mean, Cordiant Digital Infrastructure, the IPO closed on the 12th of February, with the new shares expected to start trading on the 16th. So uh, not too far away at all. I mean, I think the principle is that people are looking for uh, sources of yield. And clearly, both of these uh, investment companies offer that, uh, although there are slight differences in terms of the, the dividend levels that they've they've highlighted. They're offering uh, returns that should be uh, uncorrelated to uh, the broader market. In other words, you know, regardless of the direction of, of the equities or, or the bond markets, these things should keep plowing on regardless. And, and certainly, uh, that kind of return profile is one that a lot of people are interested in. And I think, to be honest, infrastructure in general has been a, an asset class. And as you, you rightly say, we talked about it any number of times over the preceding months. It has delivered to date. And so I think what we're seeing now are these investment companies focusing on a particular area and a particular growth area uh, within the general infrastructure world. Um, and uh, that intuitively makes sense that now people are familiar with infrastructure as an asset class. It's now being taken to the next level and an area of specialism and expertise. We've heard, of course, a triple point you mentioned. I mean, they also have uh, a couple of other investment trusts, do they not? And uh, they're in some of them quite different areas. One of them is in social housing, I think. So how easily are these kind of skills transferred, you think, from one? I mean, social housing and uh, digital infrastructure are quite sort of different things, you would think. They're both infrastructure, obviously, but they, uh, they're quite different things. So do you think that'll be a concern for people who are looking at that? I see they've done a, a kind of joint venture or they're having a, a very close relationship with the people behind this Aquacoms who are also going to be advising the uh, investment policy. But do you think that might be an issue for, for investors looking at this one? I think it's fair to say that obviously within the investment management world, uh, there are a number of very well-respected investment managers who um, have different teams and different strategies uh, investing across different asset classes. So I don't think that's necessarily a problem. That 
though with any IPO, there's always a question of the expertise of any investment team. Do they really understand the area? Have they got uh, experience of deploying their clients' capital in this particular area? So those are the kind of questions that would come up in terms of the due diligence uh, process of any potential investors. But I don't see it necessarily as a problem. I mean, from Triple Point's point of view, the fact that they're already, as you rightly observe, involved in a couple of investment companies, if anything, should be a strength that they can point to the fact that these are existing companies that have delivered uh, and that they understand the marketplace and they understand what shareholders are looking for. So I don't see it as, as a problem at all. We might also, in a minute, talk just about the fee structure of some of these things. I noticed that uh, Digital 9 infrastructure, the one we just mentioned, which is ticker, is uh, going to be DG19 if it succeeds. Uh, they have a flat 1% fee uh, declining as the uh, size of assets goes up. The next uh, trust we're going to talk about is uh, something called uh, Next Energy Renewables. And this is another planned IPO, again from a, an outfit that I think we are familiar with already. Uh, what can we say about this particular planned uh, fundraising. So Next Energy Renewables are looking to raise up to £300 million to invest in a diversified portfolio of global private renewables and energy transition infrastructure opportunities. Uh, And investments are going to include new energy transition infrastructure, and that includes hydrogen and battery storage. This is a little bit different in as much as over time, the portfolio will be equally weighted between funds managed by the Next Energy Group, but also third-party managed funds and direct investments, uh, and that will be through co-investments. They're looking to target total return of between about 9 and 11% per annum, uh, and there will be a 3p dividend target in 2021, and that will rise to 5.5p in 2022, and then they'll look to grow it progressively thereafter. So we're going to get the prospectus relatively soon, and they're looking to close this IPO in early March. So there is going to be quite a lot of competition in this area. Last week, we mentioned, uh, as I said, Cordian Digital Infrastructure, and they were issuing subscription shares, which we talked about. They seem to think that will be an incentive to get some more people into the IPO. And this one, we got a fund of funds. We've had uh, a flat on it. And this Next Energy Renewables has a performance fee. So they're all kind of slightly different in the way they kind of structure their offerings. Is it actually quite common to have performance fees in this alternative asset sort of infrastructure, renewable energy area? It's less common than elsewhere in the uh, investment company space. I mean, at one stage, uh, performance fees if not for the majority of investment companies, certainly they were a feature of the investment company universe. The trend has been over recent years to see most investment companies move away from performance fees. And you only really see them now in a significant way in the private equity asset class, the hedge fund space that we talked about last week in the case of the Brevin Howard funds. And then there are a few isolated examples thereafter. I mean, people have their views on whether performance fees are worthwhile or not. For what it's worth, my view is that I think it makes sense to reward people for outperformance uh, and at the same time maybe have a lower base fee uh, when performance is, is less exciting. But that is not necessarily the direction of travel across the investment company space. I mean, what I can say is that whenever there's a, an IPO or a new potential launch, uh, fees are always a talking point. It's something that uh, investors are very focused on. Uh, because although any investment company can set target returns at whatever level they they deem to be appropriate and justifiable, one of the things that is certainly true is that the fees will be paid. So it is always a key focus, and there is always quite a lot of negotiation around fees, not necessarily at the stage that we're seeing these potential funds. Uh, it's normally at an earlier stage and a kind of pre-marketing stage. 
So the fact that they, they've gone for this kind of arrangement, one suspects that's something that would have come out of their, their pre-marketing uh, conversations with potential investors. And they obviously believe that they can justify, not least, I suspect, because of the element of private market funds uh, in the mix. Do you mean by that that actually they're going to have to pay quite a high fee to get into these funds themselves? Or are you making some other point there, Sam? I wasn't quite clear about that. I mean, I think the point is about the performance fees. It's one thing if you're a, an equity trust where you're hoping to make some substantial capital gains and so on. But if you're just targeting a total return of, you know, 7 to 10% and you want a performance fee on top of that just for, for delivering a little bit of capital return, I guess some people might think that's uh, having too much, a chunk of the pie, if you like, um, unless your actual uh, annual fee is quite low. But I didn't quite understand what you meant by that uh, that last comment you made, Simon. Sorry, yeah, no, just referring to the fact that its performance fees, uh, as I say, are more uh, usual in the in the private market space and not least on the private equity side. So that's where you do come across it. So maybe that's their justification for it, that that's the fee structure that is appropriate for that particular asset class. But I think your point is right in terms of renewable funds in general, that to have a performance fee is a differentiator. Okay, so we haven't finished with this uh, fundraising section. We've got some more. There's SDCL Energy Efficiency Income. This is an existing trust, SEIT, and they're looking to raise some more money as well in, in common with many of their peers. What's the, what are the details there? Yeah, so they announced this week that they're looking to raise £100 million pounds, uh, through a placing at 106p, so £1.06, and, and that represents a 4% premium to their uh, latest NAV, which is at the end of September last year, and a small discount to their share price prior to the announcement. So the placing will close on the 11th of February, with the new shares expected to start trading on the 16th. So again, this is a, an investment company that's been with us now for a few years. It was launched in December 2018. It raised 100 million at launch. And I seem to remember that was below the initial target. But actually, since then, it has come back to the market on a number of occasions. In fact, it came back twice last year and raised over 100 million pounds each time and has actually built up uh, its portfolio. So I think its uh, market cap is about 560 million pounds now. So in a relatively short period of time, it has done very well in terms of performance and uh, raising new capital. So I'm just looking through these four, you know, the Cordiant and Digital 9, two digital infrastructure funds, the Next Energy Renewables and the secondary issuance, and that's well over a billion pounds that they're targeting. I haven't got it yet, of course, which is <laughs> perhaps a crucial point to make, but they are going at well over a billion pounds. And uh, as we discussed last week, I mean, that's, that's a pretty good start to the year. If they get all that money, I mean, out of compared to an average year, and we're only in the second week of February, or not quite in the second week of February yet. If they get all that money, they'll be it'll be setting quite a pace for the year, won't it not? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, just to put some context on this, um, I, I mean, unsurprisingly, the first half of last year was a pretty difficult period in terms of fundraising in general. Clearly, from September last year, it picked up a pace, and actually, the final quarter of last year was the strongest that we'd seen in thirteen years. That has continued to the extent that in January, we estimate that fundraising across the sector was about £512 million, uh, which for January is actually not a bad level of fundraising. Again, that's the highest we've seen for that particular month in the last 13 years. And, uh, you know, £1.2 billion raised in December, and that included four IPOs. So it does feel that the, the conditions for fundraising are good in general. There's obviously quite a lot of institutional interest, particularly on those more specialist mandates. And actually, regular issuance is still proving very, very strong as well. So 
Uh, you know, we talked about the uh, number of the funds in the Bailey Gifford stable, uh, issuing shares, proving popular, other investment trusts such as Smithson, Worldwide Healthcare, Allianz Technology, trading consistently on premium ratings and being able to issue shares into that. So the backdrop for fundraising does seem positive. And then finally, in this context, you might just mention uh, VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities. That was an IPO which closed very recently, and I think the shares started trading this week. Um, how did they do? How are they performing? And how does that compare with the, with the rest of the, uh, the peer group? They're doing okay. It's still early days, obviously. We're literally into the first few days uh, of its uh, trading life. Um, so they're trading on a, on a small premium, 101p at the moment. Bear in mind, they'll have an initial NAV uh, of something like 98p. But yeah, I mean, again, the first IPO of the year, and we don't normally see an IPO in January. That's relatively rare. And they raised 243 million. And again, global sustainable energy infrastructure assets. It's, it's clear uh, what the market's looking for at the moment. Finally, on the fundraising, and there's another one still to come, but it's a slightly different area, but not that far removed, I guess. And this is uh, Warehouse REIT, WHR, uh, one of the uh, trusts which operates in the, uh, again, very popular logistics uh, sort of warehousing area. What are they proposing to do? Yeah, so this week, Warehouse REIT announced a proposed placing. They're looking to raise gross proceeds of up to about £46 million and they're looking to issue shares at 121p. And that placing price represents about a 2% premium to their NAV effectively at the end of September last year. Basically, they have a number of assets lined up for this. They've got two adjacent distribution warehouses in Harlow, uh, which are valued at 14 million. They've got two further assets, uh, which are under uh, offer, also valued about 44 million. So just to remind people, this investment company specialises in investing in uh, warehouses for e-commerce and their portfolio now is uh, valued at over 560 million. So again, for a relatively recent launch, they've been able to uh, raise additional capital and actually, again, perform strongly. Yes, and you can tell this is a growth area if you spend any time driving on the motorway, which of course none of us does at the moment. But uh, in principle, if you do, driving around the country, you'll see a lot of these big boxes sitting by motorways where they uh, they do actually act as big distribution centres. And boy, some of them are pretty large, it has to be said. Uh, there's one I've seen on the way to Norfolk, which is uh, absolutely enormous. Uh, so it is a growth area. And no doubt, uh, if all these forecasts about the future of online shopping are true, it's not going to run out of steam anytime soon. Let's move on to talk about some results now. I think that is all the fundraising news this week, but there is quite a lot of it. Uh, let's go on and talk about a trust called Aberforth Smaller Companies Trust. These are uh, dyed-in-the-wool value investors. I think it's uh, perhaps how I would characterise them, but uh, maybe that's uh, perhaps not as nuanced as I should be about that. They've had some results, and uh, how have they been doing? So Aberforth Smaller Companies had its annual results out for the 12 months to the end of December uh, last year. Obviously, it's been a tough year. It was a tough year for Aberforth Smaller Companies. NAV total return uh, was actually negative, down 15%, and that compared with a decline of uh, 4% for its benchmark. In share price total return terms, uh, it was also down about 15% or so. But just to kind of get behind those figures a little bit, uh, the story here is actually a little bit mixed. So in the first quarter of last year, uh, they actually saw their worst calendar quarter in the 30-year uh, history of that particular investment trust, whereas in the final quarter of the year, it was actually their strongest ever three-month period. 
so really impacted by the coronavirus, by the pandemic. I mean, as you rightly say, they are dyed-in-the-wool value investors. Um, they're very, very knowledgeable on the UK small company market. They have a bias to cyclical companies and, and probably UK domestic businesses as well. And clearly, that was not the place to be, particularly in March, April of last year. What I would say is actually, it's if you're interested in this particular asset class, it's well worth a read of the investment manager's report on this one, um, because they really uh, give some good colour into how they worked with their portfolio companies during those very difficult days last year. Uh, and they make the point that but for the furlough scheme and the COVID corporate financing facility that was available, that uh, a number of businesses would have failed uh, around that period. And also, it's fair to say the the support that came from equity markets in terms of additional fundraising, of which, unsurprisingly, this investment trust did get involved in, in a number. If there is good news, it's that they've increased their full-year dividend uh, by 4%, although they did use some of their, or quite a big chunk of revenue reserves to get to that 33.3p uh, dividend total dividend for the year, uh, that included 19.4p of revenue reserves. But again, in the report, they do make the case for cyclical businesses. Uh, they observe that the market has been very much focused on more secular growth businesses, whereas they make the point that actually, you know, to be a cyclical business, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad company and that they would argue that uh, the companies that they have in their portfolio are actually incredibly well managed and no doubt well set for an eventual recovery in the UK economy. Yes, and I think in their defence, one could say they have had a tough time, obviously, because the whole style and approach has been very much out of favour. But at least you know what you're getting there. And so if you are someone who wants to uh, increase your exposure to you know, a value uh, cyclical stocks, they are a very good place to go and look. And they will give you that as opposed to you know, your Bailey Giffords or the others at the other end of the extreme who are very much in the growth thing. So it is, it does give choice, but it does mean they have to go through some hard times from time to time when their style of investing is, is out of favour. And of course, there is another related trust called the Aberforth Split Level Income Trust. This is one really more for the specialist trust aficionados. Uh, a split level income trust. Uh, you perhaps better explain exactly what that is. And then we can just talk about their latest results as well and see how they compare both with the uh, Aberforth Smaller Companies Trust itself and with their peer group and benchmark. So a split capital uh, investment trust, there are not that many left, to be perfectly honest, but essentially they are an investment trust company that have different share classes and invariably one is geared by the other. So just to explain how it works in the case of Aberforth split level income, there's an ordinary share class and there's something called a zero dividend preference share. And basically the zero dividend preference share acts as a form of debt. It is a share class in its own right, but it has a finite life and it has a, a predetermined level at which it will be repaid at. So it doesn't pay a dividend, as the name would suggest, but you know that at some point in the future, um, it will be repaid at a certain level. Now, what that means to the ordinary share class is effectively gives it geared exposure and invariably there's a pickup uh, in terms of the yield. And that's exactly how it's working in the case of Aberforth Split Level Income Trust. The gearing, uh, certainly at the end of January, uh, equated to 38% of net assets, which is uh, a higher level than you'd expect for most investment trusts. But it offers a yield of 6.6% based on the current share price. So that's uh, the attraction uh, to a number of people. In terms of the results announced last week, the interim results for the six-month period to the 31st of December 
last year, so the, basically the back half of last year, uh, and this demonstrates the impact of, of the gearing. So in that period, the NAV total return was up about 42%, and that compared with 28% for the benchmark, uh, and the share price was even better, up 51% as the discount narrowed from about 10 percent down to five percent. Now gearing was a, a key part of that outperformance and in fact the ungeared returns were actually up 28 percent in other words in line uh, with the benchmark. So that raises an interesting question for me Simon which is um, are the portfolios of these two trusts the same? So in other words you have two ways of actually getting involved in this particular style and strategy. You can either go down the the geared route or you can go down the the plain vanilla route which doesn't have the if you like, the kind of souping up of the portfolio uh, with the uh, accompanying uh, eye of volatility. Yeah, that's right. Aberforth as a house, they are entirely focused on UK small caps. They have a value style. That's what they do. There's a partnership structure. So the portfolios, uh, to all intents and purposes, will be very, very similar. As you correctly observe, uh, the gearing is the kind of key difference. And obviously the yield that uh, is offered on Aberforth split level income as well. Next up on the results is uh, BlackRock Income and Growth Investment Trust, BRIG. This is another UK equity trust. Uh, they've had some annual results, quite different kind of trust, I think. So what's the story there? Yeah, so BlackRock Income and Growth Investment Trust had its annual results out for the 12 months to the end of October last year. The NAV total return was down 17%, uh, although this represented a relative outperformance. Its benchmark was down about 19% or so. And in fact, in share price total return terms, it was down 15%, so a slightly better. It invariably trades around uh, NAV, this one. The board have made it clear that in an ideal world, they'd like it to um, the share price to bear a strong relationship to uh, the NAV. So a zero discount policy is probably overstating it a little bit, but they do uh, support the share price via an active buyback program. But uh, another thing to note, this is a UK equity income fund, and it did get hit pretty hard, as one might expect, uh, by what happened in terms of dividend cuts last year. So its revenue was actually down 26% in the period, although the decision was made to um, maintain the full year dividend at seven spot 2p. So on a historic basis, uh, at the moment, it's yielding about 4.1%. So just a little bit under uh, the average for the UK equity income peer group at the moment. How big is this trust? It's not a it's not a particularly big player, is it? Do you think it's one of these trusts that uh, might start to question whether it has a, a kind of sustainable future at the at the size it is? So it has a market cap of about thirty nine million pounds uh, or so at the moment. Obviously, in in total asset terms, it'd be a little bit larger, and that certainly makes it uh, not the smallest in the peer group, but certainly one of the smallest. I mean, the the average size of a UK equity income uh, investment trust would probably be nearer to 500 million, certainly not below 100 million. So it is on the small side. And uh, for that reason, I suspect it is off the radar of a, a number of investors. There are certain people across the investment companies uh, sector that call for small funds to consolidate or they should disappear, or they should wind up or something should happen. Um, I mean, my personal view is uh, not quite as draconian as that. I, I think it's very important if you are of a size uh, where it does make it difficult for investors to naturally buy your shares, um, then you have to be quite clear about what your growth plan is, You know how you're going to appeal to investors and how you're going to grow your company. So I think that's the challenge for not just BlackRock income and growth, but actually a number of investment trusts that find themselves in a similar position size-wise. Yes, and I guess, I mean, BlackRock is a very large uh, investment management company. They have uh, a lot of investment trusts and a lot of expertise in this area. 
I mean, do you think it's uh, an issue that will be concerning them as well as the, as the manager of this uh, of this trust, not just the the board with concern for the growth of the shareholder? But I imagine the it's not going to be a huge item on the black rock uh, every month. They're not going to be looking at how well this particular trust is doing or how much uh, income it's bringing in. I think BlackRock, as an investment trust stable, they have a, a number of highly successful uh, investment trusts. I mean, BlackRock Frog Morton Trust has been issuing shares. BlackRock World Mining has been re-rated uh, recently, although they have a number who are a little bit on the small side. And I think BlackRock Income and Growth will be the smallest uh, investment trust in their stable. Um, you know, they'd be very keen to, to grow not just this investment trust, but their overall stable. Um, and I'm sure they note the success of other houses in terms of issuing new uh, investment trust companies as well. And I'm, I'm sure that's something that they consider as well, given the incredible resources that BlackRock has uh, in terms of the different mandates and asset classes that it's uh, involved with. Uh, do you think that the fact that the board is, is uh, considering investing a portion of its assets in non-UK listed securities, is that going to be part of a, a sort of new growth strategy? Is that, is that, does that fit into that general pattern? Um, yeah, that's an interesting development. So obviously, they need shareholder approval uh, in order to do that. But it's worth noting that, uh, to be honest, the majority of investment trusts in the UK equity income peer group do uh, have the ability and actually embrace that ability to invest overseas. You can invest up to 20% of your gross assets, which is, is exactly what BlackRock Income and Growth are seeking uh, power to do, and retain your UK equity income status. Uh, and what we're seeing for other investment trusts is the attractions of not just US, but European companies, perhaps in sectors such as uh, oil and gas, uh, where perhaps they see them as an attractive uh, alternative, some of the names overseas as attractive alternatives to BP Shell, uh, in the healthcare space as well. So the UK marketplace is quite focused in in certain areas, healthcare uh, and oil and gas, and this is a way of diversifying their portfolios out a little bit. So let's move on. We mentioned uh, Frontier Emerging Market Trust before, and there is uh, another trust called Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income Trust, J-E-F-I. They've had some annual results out, and you said it was a a tough period for that particular part of the global equity market. Uh, How did Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income Trust get on? Yeah, they had a difficult time, to be honest. So annual results to the end of September last year, NAV total return for Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income Trust down 10%, and that compared with their benchmark, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, which was up 12%. In share price terms, it was down 13% uh, as the discount widened from 5% to 9%. And the reasons for the underperformance, uh, similar to what we've seen for some of the other emerging market names, actually, they were underweight China, uh, and they had a lack of exposure to the ultra-large caps. Although there were some um, positive signs, some of their technology stocks performed well uh, in the period, but not holding uh, large index constituents, Tencent and Alibaba was the biggest detractor. Total dividends for the financial year were 4 spot 4p, uh, and that represented a fall from the previous financial year when dividends totaled 4.6p, so that was actually a dividend cut. Uh, and they used half a pence of revenue reserves to supplement uh, the income to pay the dividends this year. But uh, even though the level of dividend income received from the portfolio has fallen uh, in recent months, and that's obviously as a result of uh, the coronavirus, the uh, investment advisors uh, remains confident that income will recover during the current financial year. So financial year 2021, uh, as a number of investee companies uh, that have cancelled or deferred payments over the last six months are expected to resume paying their dividends. 
So tough times for those in the frontiers of the emerging markets, or at least partially in the frontiers of the emerging markets. Let's move on to some more specialist trusts, where the results have been rather more uh, impressive, one has to say. And let's start with um, BlackRock Energy and Resources Income Trust. This is an interesting one, BERI, because it's transitioning between one strategy and the next. Perhaps you could fill us in on what the latest story at this one is. Yeah, that's right. So they had their annual results out for the 12 months to the end of November last year and um, a pretty decent return. Their NAV total return was up 14%, while their share price total return was actually up 16% as their discount narrowed. Uh, But you're right, at one stage, this was almost a 50-50 split between mining and energy. And actually in March last year, they announced that they would look to move the mandate on. Um, it's probably true to say that at that stage, people were probably a little bit distracted by what was going on in the wider marketplace. But over the last uh, nine months or so, they have moved it on. So it's probably about 50% in mining, uh, 26% in energy, but the balance 24% in energy transition. So looking to, to move the portfolio away from where it previously has been. But uh, dividends, uh, an important part of the story, and actually dividend income per share has increased by nearly 9% to 4.31p. And that's actually supported by a corporate tax refund. Um, But they've given a target of 4p for their financial year 2021 as their target dividend, and they may use uh, some uh, reserves in order to achieve that. So a positive story for this one, and actually the, the manager's Tom Hall and Mark Hume, very interesting in terms of uh, how the trends of decarbonisation are working in their space. And they talk about how copper is a a key beneficiary of that particular trend. Uh, And also on the mining side, uh, talk about how that particular sector may benefit from rising inflation. So they sit in the uh, commodities and natural resources sector. How have they been performing in this? It's been quite a good period for uh, commodities uh, in the recovery anyway from the from the pandemic. How have they been performing? Over the last year or so, they've generated an NAV total return of about 27%. In share price terms, a little bit stronger, 34%, uh, as that discount has tightened in. Just to compare it, I mean, BlackRock World Mining is obviously a mining pure play. That's performed even better, actually, 39% in NAV terms over the last year and 55%. Uh, in share price terms. But as I say, that's a pure play mining exposure, whereas this is energy and energy transition as well. But the yield at the moment on historic basis on BlackRock Energy and Resources is just short of 5%, 4.9% at present. Yes, I was again looking at the share price total return data from the AIC website, and it does underline, I mean, again, the fact that commodities resources we know are very cyclical, nothing more cyclical in a way, and very volatile. And so you've got these trusts, some of which have got some pretty impressive returns over five years, and yet they're loss-making over 10 years. I mean, it really has been a roller coaster ride. And uh, it's not, these are not trusts that you can sort of buy and hold with any great confidence, because we know that commodities go through these great up and down cycles. Um, and BlackRock World Mining, of course, is the sort of biggie in this area. I noticed some people have been uh, a little critical of the fact that they've changed their benchmark recently, but they're still performing pretty well. Are you aware of a lot of demand for this kind of uh, commodity specialist trust at the moment? I mean, you can see that there is strong demand in as much as it's been re-rated. So at the moment, BlackRock World Mining is trading on a very small discount, probably at less than 1%. And that compares with uh, 9%. Uh, average over the last 12 months. So it has been re-rated and clearly that's benefited shareholders in terms of the share price appreciation. 
But yes, it's a, it's a sector that's really come into its own and probably offered a lot of value if you go back uh, not that many months. Indeed. And talking about another sector, this is a much newer sector. We don't really quite know it's a longer term pattern of performance. And this is what's called, I think, growth capital. And we're talking about a, a trust uh, we've talked many times about, Chrysalis Investments, C-H-R-Y. They've produced their annual results. Uh, must be only their second year in operation, I think, something like that. Um, and how have they been performing? Uh, very well is a short answer. Yep. So they announced their annual results to the end of September, uh, an NAV return of 42%. Share price less impressive, up 17%, though, to be fair. Uh, there's a timing issue here, and actually uh, the share price has really pushed on since the uh, period end. But uh, effectively, they've benefited from uh, a number of their holdings. So just to remind people uh, how this one works, it invests in uh, private companies looking at fast-growing tech-enabled companies, private companies in the UK uh, and Europe. And again, these aren't just uh, startups. These are effectively quite mature. I suppose many of them would be unicorns, but high quality uh, businesses. It's a pretty concentrated portfolio, just 12 holdings or so. But that NAV performance has been really driven by the fact that a number have seen uh, valuation uplifts, including the IPO of the Hutt Group, so THG, um, that benefited evaluation. And also uh, Klarna and TransferWise, they saw uh, funding rounds in the period, which uh, resulted in an uplift to the valuation. So lots of portfolio activity. They raised some money towards the end of last year. I think it was an additional about £95 million pounds off the top of my head. But certainly it has performed well. And it's trading on quite uh, a big premium at the moment, probably about a 20% premium to NAV. So again, it's, uh, it's an investment company that's done uh, incredibly well in a relatively short period of time. And again, this is one where the announcements about the NEV, do they come out promptly or they come out with a lag? Uh, it's similar to private equity in, in that sense, is it? Very much so. So we're looking at the NAV as at the end of September. So I think, again, off the top of my head, they'll do quarterly NAVs, but there will be a, a lag, as you rightly say. And, and that's what you would expect to see, certainly uh, in the private equity space or growth capital, to be more precise in this case. And finally, then, let's move on to a private equity trust, which is ICG Enterprise, ICGT. They've had a, uh, a quarterly update, as you said. They've just won one for the end of October. So that's about four months ago now. What was their story with uh, NAV there? Yeah, it was a good, strong uh, quarter for ICG Enterprise. This investment trust used to be called Graphite. Graphite Enterprise, people might possibly know it better as that old name. Uh, it's been ICG now for a few years. But yet a strong quarter for ICG Enterprise. The NAV was up. 11% on a total return basis. Uh, and actually over the nine months to the end of October, it was up uh, just short of 10%. So it benefited from a, a quite a bit of investment activity. Uh, so realizations and secondary sales generated uh, over 70 million pounds. And as I say, they had a few realizations in there, but they've been busy in terms of new commitments as well. And just to remind people, this is it's an interesting private equity fund. It's uh, what we call a hybrid private equity fund. So it has aspects of being a fund of funds. So it makes uh, commitments to other third party managers, but it also has what it calls its high conviction investments, which are invariably co-investments and those uh, it does alongside uh, ICG. So the portfolio has a relatively high degree of concentration compared with the other fund of funds. And there is a bit of a defensive growth bias in there as well. So if you look at the, the top 10, top 20 names, um, you'll see some care homes in there. I think there's a, there's a pet business uh, is one of the top holdings at the moment. Uh, and you've also got some um, accounting software. So real high growth uh, plays in there. Visma is one of their co-investments. So uh, an interesting portfolio. And uh, as I say, they performed well in that period. 
Okay, so I think that's all we have time for this week. Uh, next week we'll be uh, casting an eye over the property sector in a little bit more detail, looking at all the latest updates that the property companies have been issuing and making an attempt to see how well they're doing in terms of recovering. They have recovered somewhat. The discounts have narrowed and uh, rent recovery has improved. And if the current trend of optimism, as you mentioned at the very outset, Simon continues, we would expect to be seeing some more uh, improvement in the commercial property sector. But we'll have to wait until next week to find out about that. I'd like to thank you for your time, as always, and look forward to discussing these matters again in a week's time. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. The website also has details of how to join the Moneymakers Circle, our premium content subscription service, offering more interviews, portfolio updates, and market commentary. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.